Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, friends, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, you can turn to in your Bibles. Hopefully you've been reading through the Proverbs, spending some time with chapter 3 this week, uh, looking ahead at at what we're going to be doing. We are actually going to take this chapter and we're going to divide it into two sections. So half of it will be today, half will be next week. But if you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. It's about halfway in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to give you one. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dig in. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, thank you for the truth uh, that is in it and how it reveals you as truth. And Lord, we delight in you and we delight in it. And so we pray that you would minister to our hearts, Lord, as we draw near to you in this time. Lord, we do ask that you would open up our hearts to receive from you. Lord, those things that are going on that might distract us, might draw us uh, away from what you have for us in this time, Lord, we ask you would give us the, uh, the strength and the discipline just to put that aside so that we might listen to you now. So minister to our heart, we pray. Amen. Now, our study of the book of Proverbs essentially has become known as the way of wisdom because we've been moving through the book and that was one of our studies, but really that's the overarching theme of this book. This is the way of wisdom. And if you want to know wisdom, you want to walk in wisdom, you want to build your life upon wisdom, then walk in these ways in particular. And so Solomon has been taking us down this path. He's ultimately teaching his son, but we can see how God is teaching us as we're sort of peeking in on Solomon's teachings to his son. And he's been taking him down this route to communicate wisdom to him. And I compared it last week to it's as if it's this treasure map, this treasure map that kind of sets out before us and that says, go down this path, walk down this particular way. And when you come to the end of your life, you are going to have built a life. If you listen to these things, put them into practice, you're going to have built a life of treasure. And I love the picture of it. It draws, it draws me in in so many ways in the decisions that I make on a daily basis. Ultimately, this is the way of a life of peace. This is the way of a life of contentment. This is a life that is marked with satisfaction. If we let these words sink into our, go into our ears and sink down into our hearts with the decisions that we make and the actions that we do, when all is said and done, we will have built ourselves a life of wisdom. And the Lord will be honored. And we will be sort of in that sweet spot of life, exactly what God would have for us. This is what he wants. And so I mentioned last week, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 is sort of a series of these studies, that they all pertain to the paths of the lives that we're living. And chapter 2 last week we looked at in the way in which God protects our path, how simply he leads us in the way of wisdom by keeping us from certain pathways uh, and the wisdom of that. And so we looked at that. This week we're doing, and next week, uh, what is God directs our path, how he says, all right, don't go down there, but I want you to go down this way. And we'll look at that. And then next week is how God perfects our path. And so today we're going to look at the first 10 verses of this chapter. And so let me read through the verses, and then we will go back and we'll talk about them. Starting in verse 1, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart, and so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Verse 5, trust in the Lord 
with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then finally, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now certainly these are some familiar verses for us, particularly verse 5 and 6, which talk about trusting in the Lord and not leaning on your own understanding. One of the things you'll notice about this particular section of Scripture is it's a series of couplets. Did you catch that? Five couplets, verses 1 and 2 go together, verses 3 and 4 go together, and it's an instruction followed by a promise. So if, again, if you look at verse 1, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For, verse 2, length of days and years of life they will add to you. An instruction and a promise. Verse 3 says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. So, verse 4, you will find favor and success in the sight of God and man. There's an instruction followed by a promise, and it will continue that way through those first 10 verses. And the key idea of these verses is this, that in a world that is ruled by a good being, obedience must lead to our well-being. That's the key idea. If God is indeed sovereign and we live our life according to his ways, well, then ultimately that will be for our benefit and for our blessing. Now, certainly we know that there are exceptions to this rule. And this is why we have those soul-searching questions that people will ask in one form or another. Why do good things happen to bad people? Or why do bad things happen to so-called good people? So certainly there are exceptions to that rule, but the general principle is that life follows this principle that since we are ruled by a good being obedience to his will must lead to our well-being that he who made us knows us and he knows what is good for us and thus submission to his will is the best best condition for humanity so if you pull back for a minute kind of like like a bird you come up you're 10,000 feet high up in the air and from that vantage point ask this question of yourself. If that is indeed true, well, then this is the question. Well, then what should be the guide of my life? My depraved thinking as a sinner, which we all are, should that be the guide of my life or should the holy will of God be the guide of my life? And I think our answer is obvious. From that vantage point, it's certainly pretty clear. And so with that, then, let's jump into the first couplet. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. First instruction that Solomon gives in this chapter is that his son would not forget his teaching and that his heart would keep his commandments. And so for you and I, God is communicating to us that we would not forget his teachings and that we would not we would let our heart keep his commandments. The first condition for receiving God's guidance, whether that's for Solomon's son or for you and I as God's sons and daughters, is that we learn God's truth. The first condition, if you're writing it down, you might want to. The first condition for us to receive God's guidance is that we would learn his truth. The only way to know God's will is to study his word and to obey his word. It's the only way to know God's will. It's not going to come from a best-selling Christian book necessarily unless they're pointing you back to the word, the word of God is the key. The first condition for receiving God's guidance is that we learn God's truth. And the only way to do that is to study it, to learn his teaching, to obey his teaching, and to keep, and to keep obeying his teaching. So if your desire 
is to build a life marked by God's wisdom. If your desire to go back to that map analogy, the treasure map analogy, is to come to the end of your days and be right on that red X, if that is indeed your desire, then you must commit your life to the study of God's word. You must. I think often we think that, well, that's for the theologians. They can commit themselves to it. That's for the pastors. They can commit themselves to it. And if I ever need anything, I'll just check in with them to find out what I need to know. You know, a lot of times I read back in the, the folks in the 1700s in the United States. And most of America followed Jesus in those years, fortunately, for the, that time period. Every single person knew the word of God in that day. And they could quote it. And they could recall it to mind. And I think there's a reason why their lives were what they were at that particular time. Each of us are called to commit ourselves to the study of God's word because your knowledge of his word and his ways will take you to that red X at the back, the, bottom, the end of the treasure map. Now, if you see here, it goes beyond just knowing it. It goes beyond just being able to quote chapter and verse and sure, I know what that is and I know what this is because notice what Solomon adds there. He says, and let your heart keep my commandments. So all the information that you can learn from studying God's word is great. Memorize the verses, be able to put, you know, the systematic theology and the themes and all these things and being able to bring them right back to you. But quite frankly, that is meaningless if it doesn't get down into your heart. It has to get into your heart so that your heart is the one keeping these commandments. His instruction is to remember these words with our mind and obey these words with our heart. And throughout the scripture, we see that that's God's focus, is the condition of our heart. It's not the condition of our knowledge base. And I think too often, we make the mistake of emphasizing what we know in our head with the work of our hands, so to speak. That is, and by that, what I mean is what we do, where we go, how we act, etc., with the work of our hands, and not with the emphasis of our hearts. We're not keeping it in our hearts. So yes, we're reluctantly not going out and shooting people and not going out and breaking the law and not going out and doing this thing or that thing, but our hearts desperately want to do it. And so the Lord says, no, you need to guard your heart. You need to let these things sink down into your heart. Our hands are brought in line with God's ways, if our hands are brought in line with God's ways, but our hearts are very far from him. Soon enough, what we discover is that our hands will come back in line with the direction our heart is seeking to go. And so for a little while, we might do the right thing and we might be on the right path and things are going great. But if our heart isn't on that path, pretty soon our actions are gonna match up with where our heart is. And so the Lord says, focus on your heart. I think the most important thing that you and I can do to ensure that when we come to the end of our days, we're running our race well, is to guard our hearts and to keep our hearts where they need to be. And as I work with people and as I look at my own life and my own relationship with Jesus Christ, my emphasis in my walk with him is that my heart would be right with him today. And tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. will come and I'll get up and I'll set my heart right with him again. And you keep doing that every day of your life. And whether you live to be 80 or a shorter life, 60, whatever it may be, you'll come to the end of your days and you'll be where you need to be with the Lord. God's instruction is that we allow our hearts to keep his commands. Because again, the heart will inevitably impact our feet and our hands and our eyes, where we allow them to go, all of those things. 
Focus your attention on the condition of your heart. In a few chapters, Solomon is going to say this. In Proverbs 4, he's going to say, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do comes from it. Now, to guard your heart means you need to take care. You need to be careful and take care of the things that you allow to enter into your heart, the things you spend your time on or your money, the things you meditate on and think about, the things you watch or listen to. If you are not careful with what is going into your heart, pretty soon your heart's going to influence the life that you're living. This idea of guarding your heart refers to what we allow to settle in our hearts. And sometimes we allow things that shouldn't be in our hearts to take up residence in our hearts, like anxiety or unforgiveness or bitterness or anger. And if those things settle in our hearts, pretty soon your actions are going to manifest those things. And so the word here says to guard your heart. Solomon says, guard your heart, allow your heart to keep my commandments. Now the promise is, as it says in verse 2, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Sounds pretty good. Length of days, years of life, not just that you live a lot of years, but that your years are worth living, and peace, they will add to you. Who wants to sign up? Sounds pretty good, right? Like, like a good parent, wisdom wants the best for her children. And wisdom knows, personified, she knows that that can only come through obedience to her teachings. And I think sadly in our culture, and we're very much influenced by our culture, but I think sadly in our culture we have allowed to develop this idea that the commandments of God have been designed to imprison us that God sends all these commandments to keep fun from us, or God keeps all these commandments because he's somehow miserable and he wants everybody else to be miserable or something like that. When the reality is, and that mainstream thinking has made its way into Christian thinking, the reality is that the commandments of God are not designed to imprison us, but rather to set us free so that we might have a long and good and prosperous life. And so if you have this mindset, oh, man, I can't do that either. God never lets me do anything fun. If you have that mindset, you need to tell yourself that's a completely wrong way of thinking. The reality is is that God's ways free me, that God's ways are designed to bring me peace in life and years to my life. That's his promise, according to his word, as we apply these things to our lives that we'll receive. Now let's go to the second one, verse 3. Solomon writes, now let steadfast love, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So the second couplet has to do with our relationship with other people. Notice the two virtues, we sang about them today, that are put forward above all other virtues in this particular instance. And in my version, they are steadfast love, or mercy, as some of your Bibles will say, and faithfulness, or truth, as some of your Bibles will say. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them on the table of your heart, and you will find favor and good success with God and man. The attitude that Solomon is instructing each of us to have is an attitude of mercy and truth. And it's interesting to take note, that's the exact attitude that the Lord has patterned for each of us or that God has demonstrated to each of us. He is a God that is marked by mercy and truth. 
William Arnaud, he wrote this. He said, what God desires to see in man, he has shown to man. Mercy and truth. Now, mercy and truth are oftentimes presented as opposing virtues. And by that, what I mean is that you can show mercy, but then you got to like throw truth out the window. Or you could be a guy that shows truth, but you're not going to be a very merciful fella. And what we discover is that these are not two opposing ideas, but they can be side by side with one another. What we discover in Christ is that while mercy reigns, it does not reign over righteousness and truth, but it reigns through righteousness and truth. And as we sang in the song, that mercy and truth meet where? You sang it, you better know, at the cross. Don't sing something you don't know what you're singing, all right? Mercy and truth, it meets in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, in our limited human understanding, we can easily conceive of mercy without truth in God's dealings with man. God can just be merciful. God can forgive everyone, that sort of thing. But then the unclean would be allowed into heaven. Sinners would enter into the presence of God without any work being done to cover their sin. Similarly, we can conceive of truth without mercy. But then it would cast all of us and all of mankind into hell. And we know that the Lord loves us and doesn't want us to go to hell. His desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to a knowledge of him. And so in order for there to be mercy and truth from the judge to the sinful, Christ would have to obey and give himself as a ransom for many. And so what God is calling us to do is to be people that are, our lives are marked by mercy and truth is the pattern that his son has established for us here on the earth. And Solomon says these virtues demonstrated by Christ should mark our lives as well. Because the person that desires to find good favor in the sight of God and man, mercy and truth must become key components of their life. Notice that, mercy and truth. Now we all know people that excel in one or the other. We all know people that excel in truth, but they have no mercy. They're a whole lot of fun to hang around with, aren't they? You're like, oh, great, thanks again for pointing out my errors, all right? And we all know folks that excel in mercy, but shy away from truth. And there's a tendency in the church, the the Christian Church of America, to go in this particular direction. We're going to be so kind, so open, so welcoming to everyone that we'll never call out sin. We emphasize mercy, but not truth. Sadly, though, in the effort to be kind and loving and understanding, they're rejecting the standard of the truth and the judgment that God's word says will come against those that have gone astray from him. And that's not very helpful in the long run for that person either. The key, as Solomon instructs here, is to keep both of these character traits in balance, much like Jesus did. You remember in the New Testament, in John chapter 8, Jesus encounters a woman that was caught in adultery. And the plan of the Pharisees and others is to stone her. Ultimately, the whole thing is a setup designed to get Jesus in trouble. Because people have been communicating how loving this Jesus is and how amazing this Jesus is. You can look into his eyes and he just draws you in. And so what the Pharisees wanted to do was to put for Jesus the challenge of truth and mercy at the same time there. He's going to have to pick one. And if he picks mercy, then we could all say, well, he doesn't believe in the Bible. And if he picks the Bible, it's going to show, well, he's not a very merciful guy and people won't want to follow him. And so they set this lady up uh, as uh, in a situation of adultery. They bring her out. They're going to kill her. And they first ask Jesus' opinion. What should we do? And you can read the story. John chapter 8, he magnificently navigates 
the balance between mercy and truth. Ultimately, kneeling there with her saying, neither do I condemn you. Mercy, go and sin no more. Truth. It's remarkable. Read the story, John chapter 8, and spend some time meditating on it. The pattern that Jesus set is what you and I are called to live. And so with that truth as our foundation, this idea of mercy and truth, Solomon says, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. May they go with you everywhere you go. Sometimes when we have kids that have to let themselves in at home, you know, after school, they hang around their neck, the the key to the house. That key goes with them all day where they need to go so that when they come home, they can pull it out and they can get in. He says, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. He's painting this picture of someone that is adorning themselves, essentially, with a beautiful pendant or an attractive necklace. And so, you know, you could just put on your around town clothes, but if you're going out and you want to look a little bit nicer, particularly ladies, you want to go out and you want to look a little nicer, you might put a pendant around your neck. It adorns your life. People are drawn to it. So what a lovely necklace or what have you. The idea then is to adorn yourself with mercy and truth. Allow mercy and truth to mark both the outward behavior of your life, the adornment around the neck, but also to become the inward attitude of your heart. And so he says, bind them around your neck and also on the tablet of your heart. And what will it do? Just like a beautiful pendant, it'll draw people's attention. It'll draw people to you. Your life will be one that is, that is marked by people saying, what a great person. I like being around that person. I appreciate them. Notice it says there in verse 4, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. A, mar- a life that is marked by mercy and truth will without doubt bring you fa- the favor of God. And almost always here on the earth will bring you the favor of man, generally speaking. Now, of course, there are knuckleheads out there that'll think you're being weak and they'll want to take advantage of you and those sorts of things. But generally speaking, humanity likes to deal with people that are a pleasure to deal with and that treat them well and treat them with mercy and treat them with, and they're honest and they're truthful and so on. God certainly is going to take notice. Generally speaking, man will as well. Now, verse 5, Solomon continues. You know this verse. Perhaps it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Might be one of the most well-known verses in the book of Proverbs. Probably up there is one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. Notice what Solomon says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He says, do not lean on your own understanding. And he says, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. Now notice verse 6. For in so doing, then you will make your path straight. Or some versions, then he will direct your paths. The promise is that he will make our path straight if we acknowledge him in all of our ways trust him with all of our heart, and lean not on our own understanding. Let's go back and look at those. When Solomon says, acknowledge him in all of your ways, picture, if you will, a person, you know, at the uh, elevator, just sort of waiting at the elevator. Another person comes walking up, and what do you do? You don't know the person. What do you do? You give him a nice little, you give him a little head nod or something. You say, how you doing? I see you. And then you stand there together with that person. That's an acknowledging of a person's presence. It's not at all what this is talking about. It's not just a nice little head nod saying, eh, God's ways, 
And then you forget, you know, if someone says, what, what color shirt was the person wearing that stood next to you? I don't know. I didn't really pay attention. That's not what is being said here. What is being said when it talks about acknowledging him in all of our ways, it's referring to ordering our conduct under, under a constant awareness of his presence and in accordance with his will. Acknowledging him in all of our ways, it's like that silly band that they wore for a while. What would Jesus do? It's bringing him in to every single instance and responding in the way that he would have you to respond. That's what it means to acknowledge him in all of your ways. It means communing with him moment by moment in prayer. And so Paul would talk about in the New Testament, praying without ceasing. That's acknowledging him in, in all of your ways. Lord, you're with me in this. You're not just present here on the earth when I go to church on Sunday. You're not just present with me when I sit in the morning and I read my Bible or in the evening when I read my Bible. You're present with me wherever I go in whatever I am doing. And you commune with him through that, promise, uh, that, that process. You ask, you, this is your prayer regularly. Lord, how would you respond, have me respond to this person? You're acknowledging him in your response. Lord, show me the way that I should go. You're acknowledging him in the decisions you're making. Lord, make your will clear to me. That's acknowledging him in all things. And in that desperation for wisdom and insight, where you're acknowledging him in all your ways, it means that you're saying to yourself, I don't have the ability to live my life well to come to the end and land on that red X. In and of myself, I don't have the ability. I have to keep checking back in with him. I have to allow him to lead me and direct my paths. My path. Crying out to the Lord for the wisdom to know where to go and the strength and the ability to go down that path. Because I think a lot of times we know which way the Lord would have us to go. But I don't really want to go down that path. I don't have the ability to forgive that person the way the Lord is calling me to forgive. I don't have the ability to stay away from that particular thing in and of myself. And so we cry out to him, not only for the wisdom to where to go, but also the strength to go there as well. There's a great resource, small little book. It's entitled The Practice of the Presence of God. Some of you perhaps, I hope, have read it. It's by a fellow named Brother Andrew. It's like Madonna. He doesn't have a last name. Um, I don't know what his last name is, but Brother Andrew. And the book ultimately, I'm not going to give too much away because I want you to pick it up. It's about 100 pages in length, not too long. But the book is essentially acknowledging God in all of our ways and taking thought every captive to Christ. That's acknowledging him. Now, you do that with consistency. Once again, notice what Solomon does. He draws our attention to our hearts. He says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do it with consistency, not just one time at a big event. I went to that retreat, and I acknowledge the Lord with all my heart, and now I'm good for the rest of my days. You do it with consistency, and you do all of your heart, and the promise is he will direct your paths. As you read through the scripture, and you read through the narrative sections of the Old Testament, sort of chronicling the life of the nation of Israel, as you read through that, one of the things you'll notice in God's dealing with man is he is just as concerned about a divided heart of allegiance as he is a heart that has no allegiance. He's just as concerned about a divided heart of allegiance as he is a heart that has no allegiance. And so, yes, he's concerned about the person that says, I don't want anything to do with God. That's the heart with no allegiance. But he's just as concerned about the heart that says, yes, Lord, I'm for you. 
in this area, this area, this area, but this area is mine, and that area is mine, and that area is mine. He's just concerned about it. He addresses that just as much. And in the years that I have walked with the Lord, I've discovered that whenever the Lord puts his finger on my life, on an area of my life, that he says, Greg, we're going to work on this area for the time being. And whenever he puts his hand on a particular area, the degree to which I am willing or unwilling to surrender that area to him is the degree to which he has access to my life. And so when I finally say, all right, Lord, you got it. You've killed me now for the last three months and it's been weighing heavily upon me and I finally let go and I give up. And then he said, great, now we can move forward. We were stuck back there for a while until you were willing to give that error. So the degree to which I am willing to give him access is the degree to which he has access to work in my life. It's so interesting. Inevitably, the very thing that I demonstrate a reluctance to give over to him becomes the thing that drives a wedge in my relationship with him. That becomes my little idol. That becomes my God. That becomes the thing that is more important to me than anything else. And so the Lord is just as concerned about a divided heart as he is a heart that isn't given over to him at all. And what we discover is that our divided heart hinders us from enjoying the full blessings that the Lord has in store for us. And so he says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Warren Rearsby, he wrote this, God keeps his promises when we obey his precepts. And it's through obedience that we're prepared to receive and enjoy that which God has planned for those that walk with him. Now, is that new information to anyone in this room? Really? God wants me to obey him? Let me write that down. You know, I had no idea, you know, or whatever. I know this is not new information. This idea of obey the Lord and he will honor you for doing so. The problem is, yes, we all know that. And sitting in a room like this with a group of people also committed to that, Sign me up. Put me down. I'm going to trust the Lord with all of my heart. I'm excited about what he has in store for me. But the problem is, it's when we're faced with circumstances that in responding as God would have us respond, when that doesn't make sense to us, it's, it's when we're actually pressed to trust him with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, that's when it becomes difficult to do so. When circumstances arise... And God leads us in a direction that doesn't agree with our natural inclination. How do you respond then? And so again, sitting here this morning, we can all declare, yeah, I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I acknowledge him in all my ways. But when the rubber meets the road and you absolutely have to pass this test or meet this deadline or make that sale, will we then find ourselves cutting corners? and doing things according to our own understanding. Am I the only one who deals with these things? Let me put, just give me a little amen. Amen. I still remember, I was just a brand new believer. I've told this story. Driving home, made an illegal U-turn. Cop pulls me over. And within an instant, the lies begin to develop of how I can lie to this cop to get off or out of this particular ticket. That's leaning on your own understanding. Instead of just simply saying to him, you know what, if I had to go all the way up to that light and then, you know, that's eh, not worth it, so I made the illegal U-turn. Would you let me go or whatever? Instead of trust, just this is the truth, trusting God with the truth, the lie came out. Very bad, very bad. And praise the Lord, the guy caught me right away. He said, you're lying. 
I said, you're right. <laughs> and I believe the Lord was very gracious to me in letting me get caught in that lie in that instance. Because right from the start, had it worked, then I would have had this belief. Sometimes that stuff works. Sometimes you just got to do it and trust in your own understanding. The Lord says, don't do that. So that's where the struggle is. Again, it's not sitting here with a bunch of people ready to pledge along with you. It's when we're out in the thick of things, having to decide when push comes to, su- to, to shove, whose understanding will we, tr- will we trust? It's in the danger of the urgency that under the pressure of having to make a commitment in that particular moment that we're tempted to trust in ourselves and our own understanding and in our own wisdom. But learn this lesson, please, from this passage. Giving in in those instances and choosing instead to lean on our own understanding, the result will be missing the will of God for your life, at least in that particular instance. And of course, that becomes the pattern of your life and then the ultimate end of your life. You're nowhere near that red X at the end of the treasure map. And so soon you find yourself saying a word that later you wish you had never said. You find yourself holding on to bitterness that later results in dividing you from a loved one. You find yourself getting involved in some behavior or activity will result in consequences that later will come back and bite you. All because of, in those instances, your tendency was to trust in yourself. That when push came to, su- to shove, you determined that your wisdom was better than God's wisdom and that your understanding was superior to God's understanding. What a life of wisdom recognizes is that our ways are never better than God's ways and that our understanding will never measure up to his. Now, are you going to be perfect in that? Unlikely. But the wisdom here is that when you submit yourself to the Lord in his ways and trust him with all your heart and lean on him for his understanding more than you do your own, the promise is you will begin to build a life of straight paths. If those conditions are met, the promise is that God will direct your paths. And he may do that in a variety of different ways. He may do that through your reading of the Bible. He might do it through the advice of a godly friend or a wise counselor. He might do, direct your paths through the convergence of circumstances where the only choice now you can make is this one or through the inward peace of the Holy Spirit. More likely, a combination of all of those things. The promise is this, when you have committed yourself without reserve to God's direction for your life, fully acknowledging him and that without him you have no clue how to live your life well and you've turned every area of your life over to his lordship, then you will discover God is directing your paths in every way you should go. Amen? A few more verses. Verse 7, it says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Maybe you've heard people say, I I can handle this. I remember working with our kids when they were toddlers, and they just wanted to do it themselves. I do it myself, they would say, something to that effect. Sometimes as adults, we act like toddlers. We say, I can handle this. I'm fine. Famous last words of many before going the way of destruction, or at least a painful fall. Solomon says, no, you can't handle it. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. It's Again, it's a warning for us to have a healthy distrust of ourselves. Do you have a healthy distrust in your ability to walk with Jesus? I hope you do. I hope you haven't drawn this conclusion of, I got it, I'm good, I can handle it. I can live the godly life that no one else on the earth can live, but you got it down. 
have a healthy distrust in yourself. Approach life with humility. If you're going to walk in the way of wisdom, then you have to acknowledge that you do not have all the answers and that the natural way is not the best way. Solomon says here in verse 7, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. A A reverent fear of God naturally leads to a departing from evil. Alexander McLaren, he said, there's no such magnet to draw men from sin as the happy fear of God. Have you not discovered that in your life as well? Not rules that you set up, just, Lord, I love you so much, and I reverence you for who you are, going down that particular path. There's no such magnet to draw men from sin as a happy fear of God. Now, notice the promise in doing these things that are in the opening verses, not being wise in your own eyes, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. The promise is it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So the principle that we learn is a life that is lived in submission to God and his ways will generally lead to a life of health and well-being and overall refreshment. Now, this is not to say that the child of God will never get sick or develop an ailment of some sorts. The point is this. The point is that such conduct, living your life in such a way that it's in submission to God, will tend to your physical well-being. And in a deeper sense, it will secure your spiritual well-being. Sin and guilt is withering to the human soul. Sin and guilt is withering. It drains us of our vitality. If you've ever had an error in your life of unconfessed sin that you just didn't deal with, it weighs on you like a weight and it drives you down. And it's constantly present and it's all that you can think of. I believe that's a gift from God. And then when you finally unload it, and you go to your wife or you go to the person you offended or the husband or whatever your circumstance is, and you go to that person and you say, look, I got to tell you something. It, and what do people say? It's as if a weight was lifted off of me. Sin is draining. Sin and guilt are withering. There is a very close connection between man's moral and spiritual condition and his or her physical health. Peace with God, peace with others, sets a man's free. And Solomon's promise here is that the surest way to deepest peace is to give up self-will and, enli- and live in obedience to God. And so whether we're talking about the things we might pick up as a result of a sinful lifestyle or the emotional toll, maybe that's one side of the spectrum, or the emotional toll that unconfessed sin takes on our inward parts, the reality is this, is that a lifestyle of sin adversely affects a person's health. And conversely, a life submitted to God and his ways generally is one that is marked by peace. Peace with God, peace with others, even peace internally inside of ourselves. And so he gives us that admonition there. Fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Solomon continues, verse 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So here is, I would suggest, the first test to see if you will indeed trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. From verses 5 and 6, Solomon says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. One way in which we can take active physical steps to honor the Lordship of Christ in every area of our lives 
is submission to him, the stewardship of our possessions. And by that, what we mean is what we do with our resources. Now, the Old Testament saint was commanded that they were to bring a tenth of their resources and that they were to present them to the Lord as an offering of worship. And so we read in Second Chronicles, as soon as the command was spread abroad, the context of which you'll know, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of their grain, their wine, the oil, the honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. So the Old Testament saint was commanded to bring their first fruits, as it were, as a tithe. Notice that the first fruits of their grain, their wine, their oil, and of all the produce of the field. First fruits. What that means is not waiting until the end of paying all their bills to see what was left over, and that they would give to the Lord. The first fruit offering of a tenth of their resources, that's called the tithe. Perhaps it's a term you're not familiar with. Some of us in this room may not be familiar with. This idea of giving a tenth of your resources, that's called biblically, that the idea is that's the tithe. Now, there is some question as to whether the tithe, the command of the tithe, is carried over to the New Testament. It's debated among good people that love the Lord Jesus and want to walk properly in his ways. My understanding of the tithe, my wife and I, our understanding of the tithe, is that the tithe for the New Testament believer is the starting point of our giving. The tithe to the local church and the offering above and beyond that to those ministries or projects that we believe are honoring to the Lord and advancing his kingdom. That being said, the New Testament does not clearly come out and command or even recommend that Christians must tithe, using that word in quotations, tithe, of their income. Now, the New Testament does speak of the benefit of giving, that is, that we get outside of ourselves to a larger cause. The New Testament does speak of the manner in which we should give. Second Corinthians talks about us giving cheerfully. The New Testament does speak of our giving a portion of our increase, so in 1 Corinthians 16, that would be the idea of a percentage, a portion. doesn't say what it is, though, in the New Testament. But 1 Corinthians 16 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. It's the idea of a proportion of it. So that there will be no collecting when I come. The idea is forethought. Lord, how would you have me to be involved? Now, some believers have taken the 10% figure from the Old Testament and applied that as sort of the, quote, recommended minimum for Christians. But again, the New Testament doesn't really dig into that in specificity. The wisdom of Scripture is this. Pray and ask the Lord to direct your giving. And so for 20 years, we as a church, we have put very little emphasis on giving. Those of you who have been around a long time, is that true? Or you're just saying that today? Very little emphasis on giving, and yet the Lord has provided for all of our needs as a church. And I just think it's fantastic. Now, from time to time, we make people aware of opportunities, ways, hey, here's something going on. If you want to give to it, let the Lord lead you. But then we leave it with you and the Lord. We don't hammer you. We don't chase you down. We don't say, well, if you love Jesus, you know, or something like that. It's between you and the Lord because we trust you're going to pray about it and let the Lord direct you. And by just simply leaving it with him, the Lord has been faithful to do exactly that. And so that's the pattern we're going to continue in. I hope you don't mind, but that's how we're going to continue. Now, why does the Lord want our first fruits? Why does the Lord want our first fruits? Because 
in giving the Lord our first fruits, you are sanctifying the remainder to him as well. Honoring the Lord with your first fruits, that causes you to make choices about how you spend the rest of your money. As we begin to make our way down our budget, in my home, our first item that, you know, my first bill quote that I pay is my gift to the Lord um, and our tithe. But as you begin to make your way down your budget, you find that you're much more careful and prayerful about whether or not you really need that new gadget or another one of those pairs of shoes or whatever it is that you want to go out and get, a shirt or whatever it may be. And so by giving of my first fruits, it sanctifies the rest. Additionally, honoring the Lord in this way, it forces us to trust him with all the resources we have. Because if I just simply, if my starting point is, well, let's just see if I have enough. Well, now I'm not trusting the Lord. I'm trusting whether or not the numbers work out. Now, we all know that there are plenty of things that we can be spending our money on. And there are plenty of things we need to spend our money on. You should have heat for your home. And your kids should have clothes that fit them and, and so on. What are those things? Floods? No floods for our growing kids. Uh, get them a pair of pants that fit and go all the way down. Or wait long enough, they become capris and it's in. All right? And so, so there are plenty of things that we can be spending our money on. We need to be spending our money on. But at the very beginning, by saying that this is the Lord's, in doing that, you challenge your faith every time you sit down to pay your bills. And you challenge yourself as to whether or not you indeed will trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I mean, think about it. How can a person that has plenty of other expenses to deal with, how can they come up solvent month after month after month while still giving away hundreds of dollars in tithe and offering to the Lord? In our own understanding, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I got plenty of other bills I got to deal with. And the Lord says, trust me in this. Interesting, the only place in all of Scripture where it tells that we are told to do this, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God actually grants us permission to test him in our giving. So Malachi says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Single time in all of scripture where the Lord actually asks us to put him to the test is in regard to the management of our finances. Now, like all the other couplets that we looked at this morning, these sets of two verses, with the command comes the promise. And so addressing our responsibility to honor the Lord in our giving, Solomon now promises then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So Solomon now is making clear that if a person honors God with their giving, notice what he says, then their barns will be filled with plenty. I want you to notice that it has the word plenty. This means you will have what you need. You'll have plenty for your need. You might not have a Maserati with chrome wheels or something like that, but you'll have a nice, reliable Toyota Corolla that does the trick just quite nicely. Sadly, there's an unfortunate teaching within Christianity, some portions of it, that takes this message of you honor the Lord with your giving and he will provide for you. And it takes this message essentially saying, if you sow your seed of $100, God will return it with $1,000 or something like that. 
You'll have plenty. You'll have so much. And then they'll go in and say, this Hebrew word could mean overflowing, all this idea. Is that the message of the entirety of Scripture? No. So stop it, those that teach these things. This is not some Jesus pyramid scheme in which he gives to you and you get back more later and then he keeps advancing here. It's not what the Bible teaches. The whole focus of that sort of teaching, you give 100 and you'll get 1,000 back, it's nothing more than giving to get. Give to God to get from God. And that's not the point of Scripture. And that's not what Jesus is saying. What tithes and offerings are, they're evidence of our faith and our obedience. And they go a long way to you and I to demonstrating whether we are really trusting the Lord with all of our heart or not. I mean, honestly, how can you really say you're trusting the Lord with all of your heart if you can't even say you're trusting the Lord with a portion of your resources? If you do not faithfully give to the Lord, you're not really trusting the Lord. Because again, tithes and offerings are evidence of our faith and our obedience. Certainly an uncomfortable message, but quite frankly, I have no problem sharing this message with you because these are not my words. And here's what I've learned. When I was 17 years old, I learned the principle of tithing. And at that time, I made less than $1,000 in a month. I was going to college at the time, and I was working at a bank sometime, and I learned the principle of tithing at that particular age in my life. And I am so incredibly grateful. I don't even know who told me to do it. I'm so incredibly grateful that someone poured into my life as a discipler and taught me that particular lesson. Because I will say this, it's made all the difference in, the, in, not in and of itself. It's one of the main things that has made the difference in the life that I have lived for the next 30 years following that. And so I just throw it out there. Let the Lord do what he's going to do with you. We're not going to hound you on this particular topic or come back to it next week and say, have you given that thought? We have little forms here you could fill out or whatever. Let the Lord teach you on this particular area. And the promise of Scripture is that he will bless you. Well, as I said, we're going to study chapter 3 in two parts. So we're going to stop there at the end of verse 10. You can read our goal is to finish the chapter uh, next week, as that learning further how wisdom directs our path. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your love for us. Lord, we thank you that not only are you a good God, but that you desire good things for your children. Lord, that your desire is to make the pathway known, to keep us from certain paths that are going to get us off and injure us or hurt us in some way, and then to make the, the path you would have us to be on so incredibly clear because you know that it will be for our benefit. And so, Father, I, I just ask for each of us that when we face the struggle, the knowledge that you and your ways are so much more than our uh, ways that we would choose you each time and we would run our, way, our race well after you. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in it. Use these things in our hearts to really nail down what it means for us to run our race with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.